0: I just want to follow up on my last podcast. I'm reading this fascinating book. It's called The Modern Myths by Philip Ball. And he's actually a physicist, I think, by training. And he's a science writer, a quite good one. I've only read one of one other of his books. Uh... I can't remember. This always happens to me. I never take any notes when I podcast, like none. Uh I can't remember the name of the book, but anyway, I read. I read it in two thousand five. I think it was. A, that's about the the uh, year where it came out. And it's basically it's a it's a physics book. Um, let's see if I can find it. It's called Critical Mass. Yeah, and it It won the uh, Aventis Prize for Science Books. It came out in in uh, two thousand five. What else? He presents science stories and he has a series on BBC Radio 4 on the history of science. And he was trained as a chemist at the University of Oxford and a physicist at University of Bristol. Oh, and he was editor at Nature for more than 20 years. So, yeah, he's, pretty, he's a pretty smart guy. But his background is, is uh, science. And so he ventures into what amounts to... Literary criticism has been... It's become it's its own Frankenstein, <laughs> and so it's it's not literary criticism in the broadest sense is what he does, and so his thesis about myths are that you can't draw a specific uh, conclusion from a myth, so you can't turn a myth by its by by virtue of being a myth, it's not possible to. Interpret it so as it has some kind of moral, some kind of lesson about life or lesson about how morality or something like that. It's like it's in the nature of a myth; It, it actually constitutes. It's sort of the it's it's the defining feature of a myth that you can't do that. So it resists having a simple interpretation because it's the actual. It's a, it's its ability to foster multiple and often contradictory lessons or morals, or I think the word is morale. Is it morale? No, it's not. That's a different word. There's another word here that's perfect for what I'm trying to say, but the moral, the drawing the, a conclusion or a moral is close enough. Um, but it, it's it's in the nature of actually true mythology that it does this and so the first thing he did, the first thing he does in the book is he has to dispense with the idea that myths are old pre-scientific stories that people uh, told at first orally and then wrote down to make sense of the world because we didn't have microscopes and telescopes so that's the first thing he does is say actually no we have modern myths and myths are a genre They're a kind of superstructure genre, and they have certain features, which means that the subject matter and their sophistication scientifically is never the point. That's not what makes a myth a myth, right? So a myth doesn't necessarily have a god like Gilgamesh or something or a pantheon of gods like Thor and so on. That's not intrinsic to the myth, right? That's not what makes it a myth. And then later we demythologize it by saying, oh, actually the sun wasn't marching across the sky in a chariot and so on. That's the sort of modern kind of common understanding of a myth, but it's not the correct one. A myth is actually a story that's, that you can repackage and repackage because it captures something fundamental about life. But what it captures is usually the complexity of the ethical and noetic or sort of knowledge complexity about living. And so a good a good myth just has this a good myth doesn't have super defined characters because if the characters are super defined then they can't exist outside of the specifics of the story. So contrary to what you might think, Shakespeare doesn't didn't write myths. Even like Romeo and Juliet isn't a love myth, even though it seems like it should be. It's not because they're actually so embedded in the specifics. They can't really be extracted out and we can't mix and match that into endless ideas uh, and endless variations on the theme. You can't really have endless variations on the Romeo and Juliet theme. It's Romeo and Juliet and that's what it is. And it doesn't mean, by the way, because it's not a myth, doesn't mean it's not one of the greatest love stories ever told. It's just not a myth, that's all. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the thing with a myth. It's they, they're, 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 they're ambiguous in such a way that you can, you can draw different conclusions from them and all the, every single conclusion that you draw can be supported by some parts of the story. That's one. The second thing is, is they're cutting into really basic stuff really basic questions, but they don't have an answer <laughs> for the question, right? Like that's the key. There's not a specific answer that the story provides. It's not, it doesn't provide a conclusion, so to speak. It doesn't wrap up the, the ambiguity and the, the moral chaos that it might throw us into. It leaves it open and that's why you can actually repackage these stories and tell them in different ways and so um, the first one that I read was Robinson Crusoe, Robinson Crusoe, and that's, I'm not going to get into that, but that's actually interesting, this idea of, the idea of isolation and then the individual who survives isolation and, and indeed makes it, like makes, indeed thrives in this kind of environment, right? So Robinson Crusoe is actually, According to him, it's one of the first modern myths. Obviously, it's not one of the first myths. Um, and you, there's just endless stuff you can ask about Crusoe, right? I mean, just there. They, I'm not going to get. I'm not going to actually unpack all of it. But it's actually really the, the Crusoe myth. Actually, just keeps. It's like the Ready bunny. It just won't. You can just keep returning to that and keep asking questions about why did he do this? What did this mean? and um, but yeah so that's part of the that's part of modern mythology and then the next one i'm reading is obviously you know this is coming it's frankenstein and the frankenstein myth has been interpreted a, literally i think probably i'm not even exaggerating this probably literally a dozen different ways but most modern commentaries involve Frankenstein being a horrible, sexually frustrated, and foolish, but brilliant guy. He's like the anti-husband, and the, you know, and the monster being pitiful, and and uh, so- something that deserves our sympathy, and on the other hand, there's all this textual evidence that the monster was actually a real asshole, right, like, The monster actually said, I'm going to go and find your wife and your wife, your bride on your honeymoon and murder her. And he did, (laughs) you know, in cold blood, you know, he, he did all sorts of things and he didn't seem to have remorse over it. So the monster actually does have this quality of being a monster. But on the other hand, the monster didn't ask to be born and Frankenstein, that Frankenstein's the scientist in his his immaturity sort of you know cre- he he created a monster literally and figuratively and so he bears the uh, uh, you know a lot of this this kind of opprobrium but mary shelley created this story that you can you can, it's uh, it's entirely unclear how it's best interpreted and a lot of many com- commentators have interpreted it as a an object lesson or a, um, a warning about creating biological stuff. So like for instance, when they cloned in 1997, Dolly, the sheep, it was a Frankenstein and the guy was an unassuming Victor Frankenstein, the scientist that did it. Right. So there's this idea that the real lesson that Shelley was trying to say is that science has these limits. And if we try to play God, then look what happens. But it's not clear that that's what Shelley was saying at all, actually. <laughs> it's entirely not clear that's what she meant to say at all. Uh, it might have been a story about giving birth, right? I mean, it's just, it's really hard to say exactly what it means. And that's what, that's what makes it a myth. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to, I wanted to mention that I was, I was, uh, I'm reading this book about myth because I think it, it has some relevance for what I'm doing more broadly, and, um, you know, one of these things is that, you know, I think it was D.S. Lawrence who said, um, he said, we can't actually create in italics anything. So what we end up doing when we um, take that role, when we adopt that role of actual creation, right, is we end up making something like an automaton. And that's actually intrinsic to the situation that we, the human condition. Now, a lot of people would, with some justification, interpret that as being some way of slipping of Jesus smuggling, of like smuggling in God and religion and saying, we can't create anything because God exists and we're not God and so on. I don't think that you have to be that literal about it, actually, and I think it would be unfortunate if people didn't get that, insight didn't get the power of Lawrence's suggestion there because they feel like they have to fight against this boogeyman of the Catholic church or something, or, you know, the Christian God, because I think there's a lot of power in that. Even in a secular society, it's entirely unclear that, for you know, the, we, you know, how long, how long has biological life been around? Like so long that it would boggle your mind. I mean, something like I don't know what it is like—four billion years or something. I don't know what it is actually since the, you know, eukaryotes or whatever the first cell. And it's not—it's entirely unclear with that amount of time, and you know, uh, we sort of in this modern era of science, it's totally unclear that those kind of—that's actually in our purview. It could be that everything that we can do. Techno-scientifically is circumscribed in such a way that problems fall outside of it inherently, right? I think that's actually really likely. And so one of the things that I'm thinking is there probably are limits, limits that you just can't do anything about. It doesn't have it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe you can be an atheist, empiricist, You can be a a mathematical Platonist. You can can believe in Allah. You can be a Buddhist. It doesn't fucking matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Whatever you believe, there are just objective intrinsic limits to science. So the question is like, A, is that true? That's a kind of ontological or metaphysical question. And then there's an epistemological question, B, how would we know? How would we know? So it's sort of like saying we're going to know what we can't do before we do it, which sounds like a fool's errand, doesn't it? Yes, but on second look, not so much maybe because actually we have, in addition to the standard story of problems that we've solved, right? Medical problems, chemistry problems, physics problems, problems that we've solved. In addition to that story of Progress roughly linearly, like it just keeps going up. We just keep accumulation of knowledge, and then we just keep getting smarter and better. And every now and then we blow up the world with one of our creations. But, you know, like Kurzweil said, well, if we don't destroy the world with nuclear weapons, we're going to have true intelligence by 2029. I think he's going to have to amend that pretty soon to, well, if we didn't have COVID <laughs> or whatever, just yeah, it didn't happen. Um, but Right. So in addition to that standard kind of tale of on, that's the onward and upward tale. That's the by the way, lest you think that's the smartest conclusion to draw. That's the same thing as go team go. It's basically the same thing as we're going to, we're going to, you know, it's the that's, that's that it's, it's not a very deep idea that things just get better and better and better. It's not very deep at all because here's one reason why it's not deep. Unlike what the envi- people like environmentalists, and there's there are critics of that of that narrative, but they typically point to pretty obvious stuff: pollution, climate change, nuclear threats from nuclear war, killer viruses, whatever. I and, and that's not that, that's not that's true as far as it goes. It's just not very interesting to stop there. What's more interesting is that as we continue to investigate the world around us and ourselves, we actually find limiting problems in science that are not subvertible. They're not, you can't go around them. We know you can't go around them. They're intrinsic to the mathematics of the problem. So we know that there's stuff that we can't do that we thought we could do. There's a class of problems that are actually, they're actually impossibility proofs, and there's just nothing you can do about them. One of the most famous ones was uh, the incompleteness theorems in 31 gödel proved proved that if you have a system that's basically complicated enough to include the piano axioms which means you can have a successor function which means you can you can define uh, arithmetic or counting not just set theory but counting if you have a system that's complicated enough to do that there are problems and it's consistent there are problems in the system that we that are that are true but are completely unprovable they just sit there true but it, you, not in a billion years could you ever use the system to prove it. So it's a thing that you express in the system. It's completely syntactically expressible in the system, but it has no proof. You can never prove that it's true, but it is true. How do we know it's true? Because we constructed it and looked at it. And we didn't use a meta theory to do that. We used the theory itself and the, and the tools available. And so we know that there are intrinsic limits on complex systems. That incorpor- that have these certain features. And that actually was used by Turing in 1936, five years later, basically, to prove that we can never have we can ha- we, we can't build a universal bug checker. Right? So if you try to if you try to eliminate any bug in a computer, he didn't, it didn't express it this way, but the modern version of it is if you ha- if you try to find any arbitrary bug in a complicated software, there are certain bugs that you can never find using a program. You can find them if you discover them with your eyes, <laughs> presumably, but you can't write a program to automatically, fu- automatically find them. That actually comes from Gödel's results, so it's not so abstract. The other one is, that I can think of is Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle, which we had this idea that the, uh, the idea of, uh, you can, uh, I always forget the name of this guy. Uh, ma- not Maxwell's demon. Is it Maxwell's demon? Anyway, this idea that if you could just specify all the initial positions and the, uh, the velocities of every particle in some system, then you could, you could determine every, pro- every subsequent state of the system. Well, that's just not possible. Um, it's not possible because the uncertainty principle, like when you get small enough stuff, you have to use a photon How else are you going to see something? How else are you going to observe something? You actually have to hit it. You you bounce a photon off of the particle that you're looking at. And the particle has to be pretty small before the photon moves it. But if you're talking about specifying the initial positions and the initial momentum and positions of every particle, you're going to have to end up at subatomic stuff to get everything. So we've got all the basic stuff. You end up with like leptons and photons and so on. And it turns out that at that scale, which is the fundamental scale for physical, the physical world, the physical universe, at that scale, the mere act of measuring the position of something changes its direction. And so you can measure, you can, you, the only way that you can measure something is by making the system unpredictable, except for in um, statistical whole. So that's why quantum mechanics works, basically, because... Overall, all the particles in you know a a beaker of water, (laughs) like overall, you can't actually predict what one particle is gonna do, like the demon, Maxwell's demon, right? You can't do that. You we know you can't do that now, and it seemed like we could. It seemed like that was a straightforward consequence of Newtonian physics. But now we know that's impossible. It's actually impossible. It doesn't matter how Powerful our physics physical science gets. That's always going to be a fundamental principle, the uncertainty principle. Just because there's no other way to figure out what something is in some space, what its position is, and what its speed is, or or its its uh, yeah its velocity or its speed. Right. There's no way to simultaneously do that. And because because the minute you hit it with a photon, you change something you're gonna either change its speed or you're gonna change its position, but the measurement itself will make sure that you can't predict the outcome in this way that you want it, in the Maxwell's demon kind of way. So we know that, and that's why people use that as a thought experiment now, but it doesn't map onto what physics, physicists actually do. And it seems like that's just, I mean, physicists will talk about that like that it's no big deal. Physicists will say, if you ask them, most of them also have the God paranoia too. Like, oh God, if we start talking about stuff we can't do, maybe I'll get less funding <laughs> for one. And for two, maybe people will start doing some deep packed Chopra thing on me. And we can't have that. So we better act like that doesn't matter. Well, it, it does matter actually. It matters a lot. Here's why it matters. Conceptually, it tells us there are problems that you can form that are completely definable and well-formed within a scientific method like physics that explode certain ideas of progress that we also had. So that tells us that we have some intrinsic limits on science. That's why that's a big picture idea. That's why that idea means a lot because it could be an example or an exemplar for a class of things that we can't do. And we haven't discovered the rest yet. And so I suspect that something like this is actually true, and you could formulate the, you know, that this you could you want to call it an argument. That's fine. You could formulate this idea that I'm presenting in purely secular, uh, material terms. If you want, Uh, something like you know we have a little three pound brain that, and we're a creature walking around, pooping and eating, and eating other animals or the product of other animals, which is plants. we got to do something because we're just animals with brains. And yeah, there's going to be some limits to being God. Even if God is just a metaphorical idea, there's probably going to be some limits to what we can do because we just are that animal scratching around with our three-pound brain. And it it would seem pretty miraculous, actually, if every problem we could think of was overcomable with telescopes and microscopes and dudes with Coke-bottled Coke-rimmed glasses scratching mathematics on paper. I mean, it would be pretty amazing if we could actually come, you know, figure out the secrets of the universe. Any problem that we pose in some scientific language has a solution just because. That seems like another version of the God, Hypop. Like that alone, like faith in, in science that never stops. Like, you know, it will always find a way to solve a problem that we formulate. In the positive, by the way, like it never is going to we're never going to solve it in the negative. We're never going to discover, oh, yeah, actually, AI is impossible, which, you know, I, nobody has a proof for that. But you have inference to the best explanation arguments that are a lot stronger than the singularity folks have. They, they have much more the the religious take on things rather than the they don't have the facts. They don't have the evidence on their side, actually. But yeah, that would, be, that would be another version. I think that's another version of believing in God, actually. And so, yeah, it's very likely that that's actually not going to pan out. Um, and, you know, how I got from reading uh, the, the Frankenstein an analysis of, of the Frankenstein story <laughs> as, as myth Or mythopia or something. There's a word like the genre of all the myths. How I got from that to this, I'm not sure. But that's kind of what I'm thinking about now. And it's something... It's not clear that that's what Shelley was doing. She was, after all, a 19-year-old girl who wrote a very uneven story as a piece of literature. But it did, no pun, give birth to all this thinking. And it's become one of the most enduring modern myths. So yeah, that's my, that's my post.